Yeah, yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And if those of you coming in didn't hear, there are additional chairs across the hall. If you want to grab them, there's plenty of room to line them up here. Sit on the floor, get comfy. Yeah. Crisscross applesauce, there's lots of room down here, too. Full disclosure, we're educators. Yeah. We're sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we all know that institutions large and small are looking for ways to do these things, right? Reach new audiences, demonstrate our relevancy, and create advocates for history. So Tanya and I are going to be talking about how this can be done and how we can challenge our thinking on both a very large scale and also on a very small practical scale for some of our smaller to mid-sized organizations. So before I turn things over to Tanya to introduce herself, because quite frankly she's the only one who could do herself justice, um, I will say that this discussion began as a result of our involvement with ASLH's Educators and Interpreters Affinity Group. It's one of seven um, affinity Group's ASLH sponsors, and we've both been active volunteers within the organization. If you already know about it, yay. Um, if you don't, uh, an easy and great introduction is to visit the Inkwell blog on ASLH's website. So there's our little commercial for our session. So I'm going to turn things over quickly to Tanya to introduce herself. Um, so yeah, I've been in the field for 20 years. I feel like that's heavy, almost like an AA confession or some kind of therapy comes with that. But um, 20 years, predominantly my work has been focused on education, interpretation, exhibit planning, and design. Uh, most recently I've spent the last three years focusing my work as, uh, where is it? Probably the top right and the middle if you can see those, um, a ridiculous um, interpretation of an 1850s Brewster and talking about brewing beer. I am a, a brewer by trade um, and a master food preservation, which is why I'm geeking out over turnips in that other picture. Um, food programming and food understanding is the heart of what I do, but at the end of the day, we all eat. That's a common thing that I get. People go, oh, you like food? And I go, yeah, I'm one of the few species that actually has to re lie on consumption, um, but the reality is, is that food is one of the common hooks, but beyond that, I always like to focus on an education and interpretation. So I'm currently an independent contractor and um, focusing my work on the broader spectrum of education, um, not just always brewing and food. So. Um, as for myself, my name is Alex Rasick, and I'm Director of Public Programs at the Homestead Museum, which you'll be hearing a lot more about later. Um, I'm just coming off of a 15-year stint as a corporate archivist for one of Los Angeles's largest rock, sand, and gravel companies, which was so much fun. Um, it was. I mean that. And um, I historically cannot say no to a great volunteer opportunity. ASLH has definitely learned that, wrote me in, but also in a number of different organizations within my community. And I'm definitely not as photogenic as Tanya or my kids, as you can see here. I feel like any photo taken of me in action, and many of you can probably relate to this who are frontline, it's usually with your hands full, maybe trash bags out of your pockets, all kinds of other wonderful things. So I'm gonna turn things over now to Tanya, who's gonna get us started thinking about the big picture. Oh, but first, we do want to get a, a feel for who's in the room. So we had a couple of questions that we wanted to ask you all. Um, how many of you work with volunteers in your organizations? 
How many of you rely heavily on those volunteers within your organizations? Right. And there's another one we wanted to ask, too. The other one that we got that would help us, um, the size of your staff. So if your staff is less than five, please raise your hand. Okay, five to ten. Ten to twenty. Twenty to forty. Uh, more than forty. Okay, so that gives us all a good understanding too of who's in this room with us. Thank you very much. All right, Tanya. So, Alex and I were talking a while ago during the education interpreters conversations about this whole idea of museum, and I should back up. As I mentioned, I've spent most recently the last three years um, being completely immersed, not just creating, but acting in the nation's first historical full-functioning brewery housed in a museum. And it was a standalone building. We're going to talk more about that. And, but more importantly, I, I was exposed to people who we all hope to serve someday, and I learned a lot from them. Um, I had conversations of people saying, oh, like, it's okay to ask questions here, and I can learn things, and oh my gosh, this is really cool and comfortable. And then as the layers peeled back, I said, oh yeah, and we're part of this larger historical park. We're part of this larger museum. Oh, we hit that dirty word. That word that for a lot of people, they had a preconceived notion based off of third or fourth grade during a field trip, and it didn't quite leave the best of opinions. And and I don't say that just as my own personal knee-jerk and my own experience. I say that through three years of experience of talking to people who went, oh, museums are this place where I don't connect. Museums are a place where I don't see myself. Museums are a place that aren't relevant, or more importantly, I did that. Check mark. I did that once. I've been there. I've seen that. I've done that. But hey, it's really cool that you're a restaurant and a brewery, and I can connect, and I can learn here. All the things that we all hopefully explore and and want to be part of the definition of a museum but the reality is is it wasn't part of how they were defining a museum and we spend so much money and time and effort trying to figure out how to serve them but clearly they're not coming to our place so it got me thinking it got Alex thinking and we were discussing what exactly is in that definition of museum and I asked my best friend Google and she's pretty cool and she produced this definition that I got really mad at her and uh, more importantly because the main thing that I gathered from her definition of a museum is it's a building it's a structure it's a place yay that's that's really cool you know what else is a building a McDonald's a bank a Walmart is there anything on this that you all identify with from your board meetings, your conversations with your volunteers, your team building sessions early in the morning that gets people inspired. So I'm curious, I'm gonna put you all on the spot. What's missing from this definition? Tell me all, what's missing from this definition, JD? People. People. Visitors, there is no humanality in this definition at all. Now, no disrespect to interpreters, no disrespect to curators, facility management, food service, I don't care who you are, we have to have people. Um, so people was a big thing that 
I've spent my time looking at as far as designing and catering and try to encourage people to be part of the experience. And then as, as Alex is going to talk um, through programming, but it's a matter of figuring out how do we get those people involved. I'm a visual learner. I rarely pull up the tech side of Google. So I thought, well, in all fairness, maybe Google, you had an off day. Show me what you got via Im images. And she failed me again. Why does Google have to be a boy? <laughs> Google is a girl. As my badge says, remember the ladies. That's a whole nother women's history tract. Our history. You're all histories. But uh, yay, they're buildings. Again, exactly in line with what the text definition was for a museum. It's a building. It's a room. It's a space. It's a place. Once in a while, you may get people sprinkled in. And I get it from a marketing perspective. You don't want to show people because over time, fashion changes. You don't want the Bart Simpson-wearing kid to be in the room because then you realize you're going to have to refresh that image. But, I mean, I scrolled through like 15 pages deep through Google, and this is all I got. I've been to a lot of these places, and they're amazing, and they're fabulous, and I felt connected and a part of it. But I don't see myself in there. And I'm in it. I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm part of this experience. I know what museum is supposed to be. I pay good money to come to conferences to be part of what a museum is. And I don't see myself in any of these pictures at all. I didn't see myself mentioned in the last definition. So that's kind of the background of how we started talking and figuring out what exactly is a museum from the outsider perspective. And who's been doing this thing non-museum um, that tries to attract people and get them connected to the bigger piece of what we're doing. Um, so in my mind, there are a couple things missing from those definitions. Um, things like visitor connection. Um, that whether it's big or little, there's no mention in those definitions about the fact that we spend a lot of time trying to get our visitors to connect to the content that we're serving them. Um, it, trying to get them to realize that this matters. There's this whole great campaign, please donate your dollars to it, the History Relevancy Campaign, but there's this whole point of realizing that we're telling a story based on humanity, and we're telling it to you, oh human, who came here on your own or with other little kids in tow. Um, there's also no mention of relevancy. Um, so this is my like most hysterical picture that my friend has ever taken of me with a severely outdated iPhone 4, um, texting my boss that, hey, look at this, my iPhone 4 is now on display, maybe it's time for an upgrade. But that's a moment of relevancy. Yeah, we all can laugh because we have iPhone 4s in small budgets. Um, but the, re the reality is, is that there's that sense of relevancy that we know we're sharing, but how are we going to try to get people to realize that coming through our doors is going to strengthen their identity and their understanding of not just history, but more importantly, how history impacts the present day and their life and their understanding and their contextual clues around that. Other things like exploration. I mean, these aren't fresh. I'm, I'm not dumb. These are all things, they're great words that show up in our mission conversations, but Oh my gosh, the power that comes with exploration. That's probably one of the most active words that falls in a majority of our, our papers that we pass out to staff. Um, we know we're doing it. How are we getting the public to understand that we are getting them 
involved in exploring. And it could be as generic as my kids um, staring at a swan or a goose, I don't know, um, roaming around. But it could be more meaningful of exploring the concepts of how did I, as a young woman, grow up in a family of Nazi soldiers, go to a Holocaust museum and and what is that impact, and, and what's that meaningful, and what's that relevancy, not just on my family's history, but also the relevancy on how I'm going to move forward of raising the kids that you see in this image here. So relevancy is a big thing. We all know that this is an important fact, but if we're not sharing that with the public and getting them to identify that there's a place for them, they're not going to come through our doors. Um, and for some of us, and I realize that the, the Holocaust example, um, not quite looking for the, the whimsy of my friend Steph acting like a raptor. Um, you're not always going for imagination and fun, but the bigger piece of what imagination and fun brings is that emotional connection, that cognitive, that, that ephemeral understanding that this means something to me and I'm able to file this away in my brain Psychologists, reach advisors have shown us that that emotional connection is key in order to get our visitors to understand that not just the fun and the imagination and the, and the relevancy and the connection and everything else that, that could be out there that you're putting forth in your exhibit, but it means something. They're able to feel something. They understand it. So share it. Let people know that that's something that you do, and we all do it really well. So, a couple examples, um, and I'll confess, I realize this is a pipe dream. It's a $4 million building that I had the great glory of, of being part of designing and building. Um, Caroline Brewing Company, the nation's first licensed production brewery, housed in a museum, um, standalone, immersive, living history site, um, basically for all intent and purposes, you walk in the doors and you're taken back into 1850 and you're able to see brewing happening right in front of you. Um, you're able to hopefully gather what the experience was, um, specific to Dayton, Ohio, but also in general, just what was going on in that early industrial stage, what was going on in the immigration story, what was going on on the transportation story. So that was a big part of what we were doing. And um, it was very much an immersive state, um, an immersive environment. Um, took a very long methodical time looking at the architectural design of the building to try to figure out how we can get visitors to feel like they have been transported back in time. Um, so we worked with contractors to choose the right brick that was appropriate for the time in the 1850s a cooperage out in California in order to try to replicate what the barrelage would have looked like um, every single day, brewing in a really stinky, dirty corset and seven layers of dresses, brewing beer for 12 hours a day over a hot open fire. Um, that was very much the reality. It wasn't just some dog and pony show. It was something that was very much themed to try to get people to realize this is so that you can leave behind today so that you can be wowed or, or creeped out or whatever you may be, whatever that, that gut reflex is about the past. Um, and everything supported it. 
And I was pretty much a geek when it came to the font that we were using um, for any of our publications on our menus, um, on the tap, I didn't choose tap handles. And if you've never worked in the beer industry, that's frightening because to tell them that no, you do not need the Goose Island tab handle, they don't understand why. Um, but you wouldn't have had that in 1850, and that wasn't a, a bar. It was very much an 1850s type of setting. So everything supported that larger theme of history and the immersive environment. Um, but also we wanted to design the space so that it was completely um, scalable for multiple audiences. Um, I taught summer camp in there throughout the summer um, for little kids, but I also taught a lot of adults and People got really drunk and had a lot of fun there. So it was a different experience based on who you were and what you wanted out of it, and that was always completely fine. Um, and, and all of it was built as flexible. The barrels that you see at the bottom of the image, um, they're not fixed to the floor. They do have interpretive panels built in, but they were designed so that you could fluctuate because... At the time, we were the second brewery opening up in Dayton, Ohio. We now have 13 breweries, and we were the only one in the nation doing this. So honestly, my budget projections were really low. I had no idea that people would actually come and drink and be part of this. So I needed to think about, well, if this doesn't work out, it's going to be a really great wedding venue, so let's not fix anything to the floor. Um, so that's something that I encourage you to think about of how you're going to redesign your experience. It's not just creating an immersive space and everything about that from immersive space. Um, a handful of us just had a beautiful lunch around the corner, and everything about it fit into the theme, down to the uniforms of the staff. It's easy to say, wow, polos are really cheap for our frontline staff, but if a polo doesn't support your theme, what else would? What would strengthen it? Think about what else can create that immersive environment. And I'm not, I'm not a first-person interpretation type of person. So it's not about that. It's more of just the overall ambiance and what are you doing to kind of foster and create that experience. Again, pipe dream. So that's great. That's fabulous. But let's be realist. If you have $4 million in the room, raise your hand. We'll talk. I'll help you figure out how to work through your project. Otherwise, let's move on to some other models. Um, recently, I stayed at the 21st Century Museum Hotel. Is anybody aware of this space? Have you ever stayed there? Yeah. Um, completely surprised by the fact that I got to stay overnight in a hotel that was a museum. That was pretty cool. Um, so if you're not aware, the 21st Century Museum Hotel is a, is a chain of a couple of hotels, um, mostly kind of up from Louisville and Cincinnati and then on up. Um, and it is a hip and young and fashionable kind of art type of space. But what you see there is the checking desk. Um, and you walk in and everything feels like an art gallery. They're not affiliated with a museum. As far as I know, they've not partnered with a museum. This is people who've decided, you know what? We're going to do this stuff, and we're going to share these really cool things, and we're going to connect people to the art history. That's their line, um, art history of the area and what's happening now. Um, so they have changing galleries, these images, um, the canvases hanging on the back wall. They change those around periodically. They're classic museum interpretive panels, artists, date of or region of birth, year of, of artwork production. They tell you the whole artist statement about the piece. Very similar to what you would see in a museum, but you're checking in as a guest. 
not thinking at all that you're going to amuse him. Um, it, it, these type of spaces excite me because it's meeting people where they already are, and it's giving them a little bit of a surprise. Sure, all you really need in a hotel is a bed and a bathroom, but what they're giving them is a little bit more and a stronger education to the storyline of what's going on. I promise they're not all hotels, but um, here at the Crown Plaza, um, I was completely surprised during program uh, committee in January to turn just around the corner. If you haven't already seen these and you're staying there, or even if you're not, go in to the front desk and then turn off to the right. They have a series of interpretive panels where they work with Detroit Historical um, to tell the story of Detroit, not just Detroit in general, but specifically this particular site where the museum is and why that's a, a big piece of the story. They do a great job, as a hotel should, to promote the restaurant on the top floor called the Poncha Train. These exhibit panels tell you about the history of why it's called the Poncha Train. Um, so they've made that collaboration. If you can't build your own standalone space to maybe kind of redefine what a museum is, think about new ways that you can go out into the community, meet your non-traditional museums, and find ways to engage them in the same ways that you're already doing, or maybe maybe the ways that you're not doing in your galleries. Use this as a test way that you can kind of find out other ways to get them involved. So a couple museum examples. Um, I am an Ohio current uh, resident and went to the Ohio Historical Ohio History Connection. I'm sorry, they changed the name. Ohio History Connection, and found some really fun examples, two in particular. Um, this one that you see is the 1950s experience. Um, for those of you not in the Midwest, um, basically the exhibit, this house is a lustron home. It was an aluminum-sided prefab home that you could order from the great catalogs of the time, and somebody would come out and build it and plop it on your prop. On your prop. Um, and what they did is they said, all right, we're going to build this house, and we're going to let you just feel like you're at home. For some of you, completely radical, and I'm sorry, but maybe you should think about letting people touch things and explore things. Your chair and your dining set of eight is really pretty. It's great, and I love it too, but there are seven other chairs that are completely great, so preserve one. And I really want to sit in one of them. I want to cozy in. I want to explore and think about what it was like to sit at the dining set in a chair from the time period. Whether I could lean back on the chair or I had to sit up because it was uncomfortable. Whatever it is, I can look at it. I can tell you it's a chair, but until I can sit in it, I don't know. So this exhibit allows you to do that. It allows you to go inside and be part of what a 1950s Lustron home experience was about. And not only do they do that, but they tell you, as you can see with the gobo light um, there on the, the pathway, they tell you in the beginning, this is our theme. This is our overarching idea of what you want you to take away from this experience. Could you live here? So you walk up the sidewalk. It's not just, oh my gosh, I remember this, or oh wow, this is weird. I've never seen a house like this. It is, hmm, could I live here? I did live there. I grew up in a home that was Lustron or not, or whatever it is. It channels everybody into that one overarching theme. So I was pretty excited to see that. This is just an interior vision. Um, everything, again, is completely from the time period. Um, again, 
Collections are great, and I'm not poo-pooing collections, but if you don't have an incredible story or reason why nobody can touch it, think about the power of what could happen if you could allow visitors to touch it. Um, you can all like throw stones at me later, that's fine. But um, I personally sat where this woman is, and I talked to another woman while I was reading a actual version of the Time magazine, and it showed a woman breastfeeding, and she happened to read over my shoulder, and she was 68, probably, and we talked about how that was shocking for her, and I was like, all right, not really a big deal, and we had a dialogue. I guarantee you, OHC spent a lot of time thinking about exactly that outcome, and it happened, and how did it happen? Because they created an immersive experience where I felt comfortable. Nobody told me I had to go here, stay behind here, keep my hands to myself, whatever it was. I was able to get wrapped up in the moment, pull off the ephemeral. Whether it be odd or familiar to me, I was able to connect to it. Another way that OHC has been playing around, um, I don't work there, by the way, I should say. Um, the uh, great... What are they calling this? The Great Collections Experiment. Um, so Ohio Historical has some ridiculous amount of collections in the millions, and they just simply do not have the square footage to share it. And they've been taxed with trying to figure out, with so many of you all have been, um, how are we going to show off these objects? Ha-ha. <laughs> We're going to show off the objects. We're not going to tell people anything. It is just open collection storage. Um, so that's what they've done. But more importantly, they've set place markers or signage to help get the visitor thinking that it's not just walking through like you would in an in, at an antique mall and saying how I've seen that or I understand what that is, but they're setting the framework to tell you, hey, if you like this stuff, maybe you should ask yourself why you like it. If it seems familiar to you, share the story. Get to understand what it is that's going on when you see it and something comes from you. You are the curator. This is your space. Very much open storage collection. Um, wow, lots of pots, lots of furniture. That's great. But they're putting the onus on the visitor to have their connection. And I sat there like a creeper and watched families and, and individuals for probably a good three and a half hours. And people were making their own path. They were jumping around and trying to identify what was going on, what was meaningful to them. And again, it's not so much about the fact that open storage is happening, because I'm guessing lots of you have done open storage. It's more powerful because they set up the framework to say, hey, how, how is this meaningful to you? How is it exciting, or how does it have a place uh, or a purpose for you? And for those who say, oh my gosh, there's so much information to be shared with these objects, that's great. Right? I mean, we all know lots of content about our space and our objects. They provide you with the opportunity to go upstairs to the library to learn more about whatever objects have inspired you. All right. And then, so exhibit and design is great, but sometimes you don't have the control over that. My guess is this is a good portion. Actually, who are educators in the room? or in that like really big, large, generic interpretation realm. Okay. So sometimes you have control over fresh, creative, we're going to make this thing and we have long-range planning, but sometimes you don't. It is a matter of we're stuck with this space. It may be a home. It may be a, 
a box type museum and instead you need to create a program. So Alex is going to talk to that. Okay, so yes, as Tanya says, now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about programming. So I'm going to be talking about how change looks for an organization wanting to do things differently. And that's not necessarily reinventing the wheel, right, but, but trying to be more thoughtful and visitor-focused. So my section is going to be broken into these four parts. I'm going to talk about dialogue-based programs a little bit, um, ways we've been able to give visitors more choice and access, demystifying collections, and promoting what makes all of us unique. Um, so these four things have really made my institution feel like we're, we're making some good choices and some good changes. And some of these ideas are not going to be new for anybody, but for some of you it might feel very new and it might be a step towards starting to do things differently. So these, again, are opportunities you've probably heard people say time and time again, borrow, steal ideas, right? And we'll hear ideas from all of you as well. So first I'm going to tell you just a little bit about where I'm from. Um, I work at the Homestead Museum, which is a six-acre historic site, that's us right there, um, that is located in the city of industry. And that is literally what it is. It is a city of industry. So there are less than 300 residents and there are 60,000 that come in and out to work there every day. We're located about 15 miles east of downtown Los Angeles. And we're not in a place that people think of as a, a place to go for a good time. Like, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to go to the city of industry. That doesn't happen. That's not what people say. And many of you can probably relate to that, right? We can't always choose where our institutions are. So um, our six-acre site includes um, two historic homes, one was built originally in the 1840s, that's the one here on the bottom left, and then uh, another in the 1920s, upper left there, along with one of the oldest cemeteries in uh, Southern California. So increasingly, we've realized that um, it's, it's programming that keeps visitors coming back. Once we finally do get on their radar in the city of industry, it's the programming that's driving visitation. And this is a, a little snapshot we put together for our volunteer staff at the end of the fiscal year to give them an idea of who visited. And so this is really the hard data right here. So you see the overall attendance there on the upper left, we had um, almost 16,000 people. And of the 16,000 out of uh, public tour days, we had available 237. And of the 237 days, we had um, 4,273 visitors. But then you'll notice if you go to special events, we had 49 days. And over those 49 days, we had 7,583 visitors. So I think many of you have already noticed and, and probably experienced in your institutions too that, that programming is what's keeping uh, visitors coming back. Would many, can I see a show of hands of those of you who feel that same way? Yeah, so it's paying more attention to programming and how we serve our visitors. Now, um, once people you know, do come to visit the museum, the way that they can access the site is, um, through, is only through a guided tour or with a program, um, except for a few times a year, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that. But thinking about tours, which is how we predominantly serve our visitors day to day, um, you, know, you can only share so much information in 45 minutes with a general audience, right? I see heads nodding like, oh yes. And in that amount of time, it can also be very challenging to address the meatier or more controversial subjects that you want to be talking more about or that you're feeling more comfortable talking about. 
On top of that, you may have docents, uh, volunteer docents, or members of your own staff who are very nervous about discussing certain topics, such as race relations, race restrictions, things of that sort. So the way, you know, our solution to this and thinking outside of the public tour was to think about um, using dialogue-based programs. How many of you use dialogue-based programs? A few of you. What kinds of topics are you addressing with those? You can just shout them out. What happened to all those hands? Art inquiry, okay. Anybody else want to share? What's that? Community engagement. So yesterday, Tanya and I recorded this session online, and we had participants chime in there too. So we had also things all over the board, like um, food. Yep. What were some of the other ones we heard? Uh, science, industry, immigration. Yeah, immigration was a great one. Yeah, so, so a variety of topics can be addressed using dialogue-based programs. And for those of you who may not be as familiar with them, um, so they're, they're structured, facilitated programs that encourage conversation around a specific topic, problem, or a concern. Right? They provide a safe way to explore difficult and relevant societal issues, often using primary source materials. So our venture into this was a program called um, Curious Cases, which is now in its second year. And this is the first time we did a dialogue-based program. Uh, and the subject, it, it, um, it revolves around um, issues related to law and order in Los Angeles. And so uh, we were terrified, quite honestly. We were talking about things like lynchings. We were talking about things that, that don't come up on our public tours, that often when you would maybe try to explore things like race relations on, on a public tour, you weren't always sure you know, what somebody's coming to your institution, you know, what their background is, what their personal experience might be. So this was a safe way for our staff to get into this, but also for visitors because they knew participating in this what kinds of subjects were going to be addressed, right? And the great thing was that there were so many connections to today's headlines. We were using primary source materials from our collection along with those of local organizations. So it, it you know, provided us with a way to put primary source material in visitors' hands. So we would have uh, context and overview based on each of these cases. Then a few questions would be posed. People would have time to discuss. And then very much like we've been doing the last couple days here at the annual meeting, you share back and other people get to hear ideas and, and participate. So it, it's been a really great way for us to dip our toe into the water. What has been surprising, and we've been very excited about this too, is that it very quickly became an off-site program. So somebody may have come, and they're a member of another local historical society or another museum or a library, and they say, this would be a great community, this would be a great program for our audience. Can you come and do this off-site? Yes, we've done it three times now, and we're going to our first high school next month. So it's been a really nice way to, to, to use this material again and again. You've already done the work, now it can also go off-site as a program. We, that wasn't in the plans. Should have been, but it wasn't. Discussion. I'm going to 
inclusive. Admission reservations, yada, yada. So you're telling them from the very beginning. From the beginning. Your investigation. Yeah, don't come if you don't want to talk about these things. Right, because that's something I've heard from other you know folks who have tried a program or tried to have a, a, a component of something that could be challenging or seen as controversial in a, a larger program for a general audience. And visitors come, and they say, "Hey, I'm I'm on vacation. I didn't come here to explain death to my kids or what lynching is, or you know." And that that's genuine, and we need to take note. You know, so I think that's where for us this has felt like a very safe way to have a, a heartier discussion. It's like replacing the lecture with a discussion. And great that you said that because this started off as a lecture series. Yeah. So we were talking, you know, wouldn't it be great, you know, if we'll have, we'll do this because we have someone on our staff with this expertise. And then we said, wouldn't this be even better if we could hear what people thought and had to say about it? Right? We, we, there are many sessions here at the meeting that have talked about how we react and respond to current events and how it usually takes us forever and a day because, you know, we're, we're historians, right? We need to process. We need to think things through. How's that going to fit into our calendar? What are we? Um, so this, I think, is another way to kind of be thinking about what's going on in society right now and what do you have in your collection? What expertise do you have? What can you tap into to be, you know, as close to what's happening in the headlines as possible? Okay, going on to giving visitors more choice and access. Why is this so important, right? Again, something we talk about time and time again, our goal should no longer be to fill these empty vessels that come through our doors. You know, we definitely have missions to uphold, but we need to understand again and again that visitors have their own reasons for coming to see us, and we want them to come back. So we want to increasingly, I think, focus on meeting them in the middle. You know, we want retention, but we need to cultivate new audiences and understand you know, what they need and want. And Tanya talked about this a little bit, and I'll, I'll bring it up again. We ask our visitors to follow a lot of rules. And some of them are valid, and we need those rules. But there are other ones that I think that we should ask ourselves, do we really need to ask them to do that? Or do we, do we need to ask them as often as we do? Are there ways that we can kind of, you know, just ease up a little bit and meet them in the middle? You know, if you think about them, right? Please don't touch, don't take photos, um, you can only visit the house with a guide. And a lot of this is based on our staffing, too. So for those of us who raised our hands who have smaller staffs, you can only do what you have the resources to do. That's understood. Um, but there might be some things you can do differently. All right. So I'm going to talk about a couple of examples here um, that aren't homestead-related, but I think are two great examples of how institutions have acknowledged and, and bent towards the visitor. This first one is a screenshot of um, Wegman's Wonder Place, which is the first exhibition on the National Mall uh, that's designed for children ages 0 to 6. And they describe it as a launching pad for a lifetime of learning. And this is, I thought, a really nice description. They explain the youngest visitors can cook their way through a kid-sized Julia Child's kitchen, find owls hiding in the Smithsonian Castle, and captain a tugboat based on a model from their collection. Through playful activities and creative displays of treasured artifacts, young children will get to know the faces, places, and stories of our country in engaging and age-appropriate ways. Did the Smithsonian need to do this to increase visitation? Have they made parents happier? Have they created great photo ops that are shared with family and friends on Facebook and Twitter and had a little bit of peace letting their kid touch something? 
Yeah, that's, that's an example of, of, a, of a good choice. And it's something that can be done on a very small scale at a smaller organization, too. Now, the second example I have here comes from Facebook, from uh, a friend of mine, John, up in Portland, who last year posted um, this great photo. And uh, what he said in his post was, hanging out at Grant Wood Studio, where he painted most of his major works. For the record, volunteer docents really rock when they show their passion and demonstrate real knowledge. And then he tagged the studio there. We know that, right? Passion and flexibility can go a long way. And it was really the flexibility that drove this post. Because, of course, I saw this and I emailed him and was like, John, you need to tell me what happened. And he said, you know, and I have there in the quote, that he and his dad had arrived halfway through the last tour of the day. Rather than leave us hanging, the interpreter lingered after the close of her formal tour to recap what we missed. I've been to a lot of museums, and more than once I've been told, too bad, or come back next time by a less than enthusiastic employee. Does that happen at anybody's institution out there? Yeah. This, this Facebook post and interaction with my friend led me to advocate for a change in our policy at the museum, because our policy used to be, if it's more than 10 minutes, they have to wait for the next tour. Even if they were willing to go late, we felt like, nope, they've missed too much. Right? Who are we to judge? If they want to come in late and that's all the time they have and they're happy and that means they may come back again, great. Right? It's their choice. We'll let them make that choice. So we've extended our policy as a result. So going back to the homestead, um, you know, this is the first thing visitors see when they come up from the parking lot on an average day. Does it look very inviting? Looks like a what? What you like a fort, yeah. Fort Homestead, change our name. Right, locked gates. We have very low foot traffic. And uh, our location is already daunting enough that we're in the city of industry. Our site was originally going to be a picturesque backdrop for a hospital that was never built. And so we have this massive parking lot, which has maybe like six cars on a given day. So visitors are very confused when they come up. We've tried to put banners on our main building, and also they tinted the glass, this like dark brown, so at least two or three times a week, you, there's a poor visitor, you know, with their <laughs> head. Even though we have signage out there, it's still, it does not, if it doesn't feel welcoming, if it doesn't look welcoming, it's, it, it's hard. It's a very hard nut to crack. So um, aside from a couple of times a year when we have festival events, when you see people who can spread out and make these lovely, elaborate picnic settings like they do at our Ticket to the 20s Festival, which is coming up, um, it's, it's what you see on the right. And increasingly, that was feeling... Oh, and my director just walked in. Hi, Karen. There's, um, and increasingly... Yes, sorry. Yes, she just retired. Yeah, go Karen. Um, increasingly, this felt uncomfortable for us. Like, we're, why, why are we closing the gates so much? Why are things, you know, locked up so much? Can we, more than twice a weekend, open this up without being terrified that something might happen inside the historic area? Right? So our experimentation with this um, happened this summer with uh, a new program called First Sunday Picnics. So on the first Sundays of June, July, August, and September, um, we opened the gates to the site from 12 to 4, and we encourage people to bring picnics and explore the grounds on their own. And each day, we featured a low-cost, low-key kind of bonus. So on the upper right, you see our, um, our great uh, local food historian and chef, Ernest Miller, talking to visitors there about how you can make your own ice cream using things like roasted chilies 
and rose water, and he uses um, recipes that fall within our interpretive period, which is 1830 to 1930, which is really fun. So visitors get to taste, you know, it's sensory as well. Um, we have crafts for little ones always, and then like an, an added bonuses are things, people that you discover in your community over here, like Mr. Cooperider, who collects uh, vintage records and has a bunch of different um, record players. So he brings them to these picnics, and he plays, and people can come and talk to him and make requests, and he'll show them how the pins work and how all that happens. So it's, it's a nice um, opportunity for people to just relax in the site. And what we found was that on these, these um, picnic days, our public tour numbers more than doubled. So we wondered, you know, doing this, are people just going to come and sit and, you know, maybe do a craft, but are they actually going to go inside the house? And, um, and we were thrilled when, when we saw that they more than doubled. We used to host a very um, large concerts in the park series in the summer, and that used to bring in sometimes upwards of 1,000 people for a two-hour period, and there'd be or two- to three-hour period. There'd be an intermission. And during that intermission, they'd be encouraged to come and look at the houses. And we would have maybe 20 people who would come. So this is a very different type of a program with people being much more curious about what's surrounding them and taking some more time to see what we've got. This also just so happened to coincide with the launch of Pokemon Go. Yeah, something that we've all been either rolling our eyes about or been very excited about, depending on our institutions and, and our visitors. Um, but we, we kind of took it as an opportunity to, um, to engage with the, the people who we saw. And it's very easy for those of you who play Pokemon Go or know people who play it or observe people playing it. When somebody walks up to your info table and they're going like this incessantly on their phone, you have a very clear idea of what they're doing without going behind their back to see what they're up to. But we saw it as an opportunity to talk to visitors about whether they'd been to our site before, um, was it Pokemon Go that brought them, or did they actually come for the program too, and they're just enjoying playing that on the side. Um, but at the same time, we took it as an opportunity to share some of the historic games we had available. And so then we took it as a time to engage with them in talking about how games have changed over time as well. Okay. Um, for this series, also something else we did, and I have examples up here if anybody wants to see them at the end, is we wrote blog posts about um, picnicking, food history, and we put those um, out as promotion, but then we also used those same blog posts in the physical program on the day of the event. So we're trying to reuse things multiple times in multiple ways. Um, you know, taking into consideration we're a staff of 10, we only have so much time, how, we think more about how things can be reused. Okay, so now on to uh, demystifying collections. So many of us um, are already using, um, you know, social, or many of us with the smaller staffs are using social media to talk about things like programs and to advertise the things that you're doing on a daily basis. We've been, I noticed, a bit slower to highlight and feature our collections and also things that our collection staff does. So our institution already had this kind of mantra of bring the collection forward whenever you can, whether it's a picture and a flyer, um, what have you. But now it's also showing what collections does and trying to tie into um, current events, holidays, things of that sort. Things that many of you are already doing. But in the, the center, for example, um, you see a small video that was attached to a Facebook post that showed how our collection staff changes the light bulbs 
in our main hall. So it's kind of demystifying what these people do. And I have to say that that word collections is hard too, right? When um, our staff tells people, like, oh, well, what do you do here at the museum, you know? And they say, well, I'm in collections. Like, oh, you collect money for the museum? It's like, no, that word is hard. So it's thinking more about how we talk to people about what it is we do. You know, we don't, again, like with those gates, we don't want to have closed gates and keep people out. We want people to know what we do. It's, it's pretty cool, right? So let's show them more ways that we do that. So we've also brought our collection staff more into programming as a result of this kind of institutional mantra. So we now have a workshop series um, that utilizes the skills of our collection staff. So it's called the White Glove Workshops. And aside from these skilled colleagues uh, working with other colleagues at smaller historical societies or enthusiasts and teaching them skills, these people also get to go behind the scenes so they get to see what our collection storage is and how we've tried to make creative use of things. You know, being a historic house, many of you who are from historic house museums know you try to make use of every single solitary closet, drawer, uh, bed that's tall enough to shove an archival box under, right? So it's a way to show people also um, to give them some ideas. But again, it's that, that demystification of, of what it is we do. Lastly, um, and this was something Tanya and I talked a lot about when we were putting this together, both on the large scale and the big thinking and on the smaller level, it's thinking about ways we can better promote what it is we do that makes us unique, right? So there are simple changes I think that all of us can make, especially when it comes time to redo something that can really acknowledge um, trends, shifts, things that we're seeing in, in our institutions that should be on our radar, so for us, on the marketing side, for example, um, most recently it was our brochure. And we decided to get rid of it. And what we did instead was we combined the important elements from the brochure with uh, our quarterly calendar of events. And again, many of you may already be doing something like this, but this was a new idea for us and a way for us to combine um, different pools of funds as well to create a better project or a product that also better represented us as an institution. If we already know programming is, is driving visitation, then we should show what we have to offer more because maybe we can engage some more visitors. And so that um, publication is also made available online through our website, and, um, and it's at off-site events, it's on-site, so it's in print and it's also online. So it's just one example. Um, but really, it's, it's identifying what it is you do well, what it is that makes you unique, and, and showcasing that, highlighting that as often as you can and in, in every way you can. So now it's your turn. We're happy to answer questions you may have about anything we talked about, but if there are examples you want to share of things that have worked really well for you or things that you've been grappling about, the floor is open, and I'm going to let Tanya describe this awesome little picture she included here at the bottom of the slide. So I'd like to tell you that I bought a really geeky coloring book for my child. That's not the case. This is like in the back of some Mickey goes to Santa Fe. I have no idea what coloring book it came from, but randomly flipped to it, and lo and behold, here it is. And I've used this for various training sessions and conversation pieces and galleries. Um, so it's a great visual in my mind of what could happen if you ask your visitors, what is a museum? What is this museum? 
um, of all the things you saw today, and my, that's how I've usually used this, is as an evaluation piece, of everything that you explored today, what would you put in the museum of this place? Um, insert your name here. And whether it's boxes, cases, blank sheets, whatever it is, but think about ways that the current visitors that you have, how are they being drawn in? How are they being inspired? How are they connecting to your site? And then probably more importantly, um, go out and ask all the people who aren't coming to fill out something like this, um, to see what they maybe either already know based off of preconceived notions or have no idea at all of what they know about the space and how would they define that, so. Yes. Good. Why do we do that? Why do we do, like, why, I just had the idea of, like, why are we always doing the same program and trying to make it as good or better as it used to be or it can be? Why is it the same program all the time? Why can't the entire year just be different programming every time? I think yep. certain things are worth keeping. Definitely. Certain things are worth keeping, but that doesn't mean they have to be the same. Right. So, like, the picture of those picnickers at the festival, so we have a, a 1920s festival every year. It's, it's got a huge following, um, and we like it. It feels good. It's a good fit for our mission. It's a good use of our resources, but we will change an element out so Maybe that they may come. Decade, or like a different time period or not in the For that particular program, because it's all about the 1920s, right. that's what it is. And we have a lot of enthusiasts in our area who are really into that, and we right. have good resources for it. But it depends on the scope of your mission. Like uh, We're 1830 to 1930. So the other program we have is Victorian era, so it focuses on the earlier. It's not always the 20s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but, but certain things are worth it. Just seems, it's always the same programs that happen all the time over and over. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah please. please. Uh, you could say that I'm brand new to the whole museum building department. I started in Welcome. Our staff pretty much figured out when it started. <laughs> you should take that as a compliment. It, it does. It buys you time, right? It buys you time. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the fact that you said, I got to, or I did, or that whole, like, yay, I was part of something. So that was part of, I, I think, a big realization that came about while I was working in the brewery. That So the brewery is a standalone building outside of a 65-acre historical campus. So 
majority of the visitors said Dear Google was the closest restaurant or brewery. They happened upon us. They had no idea, desire, or interest in a museum, and they came in for a bite or a drink. I'd love to tell you it was magical. It wasn't always. Um, frightening reviews. Almost always hit when I was dead asleep at like 3 a.m. Reviews would come through at Yelp that would be like, hey, this is a great, kitschy, weird, historical place, if that's your thing. Um, yeah. Or, wow, the beer and the food was really weird. And I should, I should tell you that all of the beer that I worked with, or all the beer that I brewed and all the food that I worked with on the chef was two historical recipes. So, yeah, they're going to be weird. They're not Sam Adams. It's going to be very different. It was a lear learning experience. But, boy, that sucks. That hurts when you read that on on a digital format or in print. But what it got me to realize is that we had lost this opportunity to get people to realize that they got to do something with history. That it wasn't weird beer that they were drinking, they were drinking old beer. You could still have the value statement of it was weird, it's not my personal preference. Um, so we started to kind of backpedal and look at how could I posture myself or my volunteers or my staff closer to the door so that once you walked in you went, holy crap, this is 11,000 square foot weird, awkward space. Okay, what am I supposed to do here? So that's when we said, hi, welcome. If you haven't been here before, here's a little bit of who we are. Welcome back to 1850. Those people actually brewing. Please don't ask us if it's a real fire. It's a real fire. Um, but also you get to drink that beer. Yeah, that's like really rude. Don't ask a historical interpreter if it's a real fire. It's always a real fire. Um, but these are old recipes you get to explore. Oh, if you're just here on a business lunch, that's cool. You're here on a date, whatever. It's a scalable experience, but more importantly, we are here for this bigger thing you get to do. You get to be part of this. You're not going to be able to get to do this anywhere else. So, Other questions? I saw some raised eyebrows. Yes. Mm -hmm. How would you know which way is better for you and the group? Ooh, that's heavy. 
If I could answer that, then I would say that I have a future of working with REACH advisors, because um, they do a phenomenal job of this. Um, yeah, it would be great to be able to find that answer of what is best, what works best for your site. I think more importantly, it's a matter of showing that you are taking that concerted effort of, of not just doing it well, but attracting people who wouldn't normally come to your space. And if you can't change your name and erase the museum, I don't even know if that's the right thing to do, but it's more important in my mind to get people to realize that this is a space that they can have conversations, they can connect, they can more importantly use this information for moving forward in their own life and changing society and all the really big Maslow hierarchy type of things that we wanna do. Um, that in my mind is more of the best, um, sure. Please evaluate your exhibit spaces and try to figure out works, what works best and talk to your visitors. But every time is going to be a little bit different, I would imagine, and every topic is going to be slightly different. But as long as you're keeping that conversation flowing, that's kind of more of what excites us and, and, and what we think is the goal. Everybody the door is different. I think that the example you gave um, when you were in the house with you know, reading the magazine and the mm -hmm. woman saw over your shoulder, what if you'd flip to another page? You would yeah. have had a different conversation. So it's an opportunity. It can be an opportunity to connect, um, but it's uh, it's often you know based on what what the the visitor what their background is, what their experience is. Yes. Other thoughts, questions? Well, I and Alex would definitely encourage you all to think about this. Certainly, I hope you didn't walk away thinking we have all the answers. If we do, that would be great. Please figure out how to fit that on our resumes and LinkedIn profiles. But um, if you have follow-ups, this is us. And uh, more importantly, it's in our mind trying to get you all thinking about other ways to redefine what a museum experience. It could be anything from as large as a brand new dedicated uh, standalone space, really immersive, or it could be as generic as changing the outfits of your interpretive staff or incorporating a new style or a new def definition of a way of doing your programming so that you can attract new audiences or meet people where they're at, go out to the grocery store and, and talk about whatever the history of the farming is of your area, if that's something that you do, or uh, find people at whatever venues they already are so you can keep that dialogue and meet the new audiences that potentially we're not already serving. Thank you. visitors to bring with them uh, something from their collection of, 
um, you know, it could be a, a book, it could be a pamphlet, and then we had staff with materials that showed them how to make custom enclosures. So that was one example. We had another one that was very basic cleaning of textiles. So something that an amateur could do, that an enthusiast could do. Um, so it taught them you know, what materials you should use. Don't use certain materials. Use these. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. What is your collection? 